There are guys just right for some kissing and I mean to This is the show that pulls back the industry curtain. We're exploring pop culture, music icons, and food gods. It's the Jeremiah Show with Will Knox. Broadcasting from the HJL Hospitality and Evolved Studios in LA and KZSB AM 1290 and FM 96.9 Santa Barbara or somewhere from the road. And now, Mr. Restaurant, Will Knox. Welcome back. To Mr. Restaurant, I'm Will Knox, and I am pleased, very, very pleased, to welcome an entrepreneur, a media producer and host, a second-generation restaurateur, and that's Brad Johnson, who has an acclaimed history as a hospitality specialist with venues in New York, Las Vegas, Los Angeles. His first job was working for his father in the cellar. Actually, that was the name of the restaurant in the Upper West Side of Manhattan in the early 70s. He then went on to the other side of the arc to become a James Beard winning semifinalist in 2022 for his restaurant Post and Beam, which is a stellar spot in South Los Angeles. He also produces and hosts currently the Corner Table Talk, not the Corner Table, it's Corner Table Talk. And it features a unique blend of guests with inspiring stories in the sports and entertainment and hospitality and publishing worlds. And they share their unique uh, points of view on topics of food and drink and culture. He's also an accomplished writer. He's published in various uh, publications such as the Oxford American He's published in Bon Appetit, James Beard Foundation, and L.A. Eater. I think of him as the Miles Davis of hospitality. And I'm really delighted to call him a colleague and a friend. Welcome, Mr. Hospitality, Brad Johnson, to Mr. Restaurant. (laughs) What's happening, Will? So good to see you. Did you like the Miles reference? (laughs) Thank you. I do. You are smooth, man. You are really smooth. And that's why I think of you as Miles Davis. Oh, thank you. Now, let's just dive into this right away and tell me about where you were born. That's what I really I want to get into the roots of Brad Johnson, because yeah. people need to know who you are, the substance of you. Uh, yeah, I'm sure everybody's dying to know. Uh-huh. Um, thank no, you. No, they are. I That's why they're in New York City Come on. at uh, in Mount Sinai Hospital on in- the Upper East Side. And it's a funny story. My uh, wasn't funny then, but it's funny now. Um, my dad was African-American. My mom was Italian. And not until I would say very late in life, we'll put it that way, did I realize that on my birth certificate, my mom's maiden name was Philomena Martha Nota Angelo. You don't get more. Wait a second. Philomena. Philomena Martha Nota Angelo. Okay. And you remember the old boxes, they may still have them on birth certificates where they had your race, where you, you know, yes. with your race. And it was Negro for my mom. And I thought that I thought the hospital filled that out because my mom was olive complected and my dad was black. So I thought they they just assumed she was black also. And I didn't find out until just a few years ago that my dad actually filled it out that way 
because uh, they were born, you have to remember, in the early 50s when interracial marriage was still illegal in a lot of places. And my father feared that had they, if they had gotten stopped somewhere or pulled over and he asked to show for whatever reason my birth certificate, if it showed that my mom was white, they could be arrested. So a little interesting tidbit. But New York City was my birthplace. And so did you have siblings? I'm an only child until recently. Uh, I found out uh, that I have a I actually knew that she existed, but in all honesty, we didn't get reunited until uh, a couple of days before my mom's passing. My mom had a daughter. Uh, she was married to an Italian gentleman before my dad. And uh, long story short, my, my mother's family disowned her when she divorced her, her first husband and got connected with a Negro in the 50s. And uh, she'd had a daughter. And uh, Carol and I uh, reunited uh, on my mom's, uh, during my mom's final days. And she asked us to please make an effort to get to know one another. So my whole life, I've thought of myself as an only child, but uh, I have a sister, Carol. I must be still somewhat comforting to know that uh, you do have a sibling, you know, now that you've reconnected with. Yeah. You know, I had a, uh, a memorial for my mom. You mentioned posting being my mom passed in uh, 2018. We had a nice brunch for her. I invited just 20 of my, my dear friends. And uh, we just spoke about my mom. And Carol came to that. And one of my friends walked in and saw Carol. She looked so much like my mom. He was like, what the <laughs> F word bomb. Um, but uh, yeah, it's it's uh, it's 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 a developing relationship. I'll put it that way. But she's lovely. And All relationships I, I are developing. I've been married 36 years. I'm still developing. I'm in the dark room. <laughs> what can I tell you? And so was it confusing for you, though, you know, growing up mixed race? I mean, did you identify with one or the other? I mean, tell me about that a little bit. Yeah, you know, it, it wasn't until I was in fifth grade, Will, uh, that I was made aware that race was even a thing. I was on a playground first day of school in a mostly black schools. My first, uh, I had gone to a Catholic school prior to that and just had kind of a, you know, an easy childhood up until that point. But anyway, I went to the school and uh, during a kickball game, one of the kids was calling me half breed. And I thought he was being my friend and, you know, just kind of buddy, buddy. But little did I know he was teasing me. So that was the first time that I really became aware of it. And again, you know, this was, uh, I'm 65 years old. So this is in the, the 60s when I'm in fifth grade. And there weren't a lot of mixed kids around. You were black or you were white. And there were some Latino kids, but it was not the ethnic mix that we see, the diversity that we see these days. So yeah, it's been, it took a long time for me. I identified as African-American and, you know, found myself trying to, you know, having to go out of my way to prove my blackness because I had curly hair and lighter skin and lighter eyes and looked different. Uh, and that, that really led me down a, not the best course that uh, fortunately my mom was astute enough to pull me back from. So yeah, well, wait a second, a how, how did you compensate? What were you doing to assimilate? I, um, well, you remember the Converse All-Stars that sure. uh, we beg our parents to spend $10 on. So I took a, uh, I dipped a, a toothpick in bleach and wrote Black Power on my Converse All-Stars. Uh, I hid the fact that I had a white mom. I didn't like to bring anybody to my house. 
um, you know, it was, it were and more behavioral issues. Uh, you know, I had to, I just had to act out in a way that, uh, would in my own mind, uh, made me feel accepted. And, uh, it, it repeated that pattern repeated itself for me, uh, throughout my, uh, my, my young life. And, um, you know, I, I, I'd like to think I, I know who I am at this stage in life, but it, it was a circuitous for, for sure. So it, it, for me, who's a upper middle class white kid growing up in San Francisco in the 60s, I'm a kid who was very fortunate in 1967. I was 16 years old, the summer of love when my parents got divorced. Uh, so, you, you know, it's a different identity. You were on the East Coast. I was on the West Coast. I was a white kid, white Jewish kid. You were mixed race. I mean, different, you know, things coming at you, but I didn't have that pressure. I'm sure I was in a very, very diverse school uh, all the way into my high school when I went to more of a less diverse um, school for 54 young men. Uh, but ostensibly, ours is a different route. And I'm interested in, in how that played into your development into your later life and of course when you left quote the city were you in manhattan when you were growing up or were you outside yeah i was um my parents divorced when i was 10 and uh, we had moved from we were living in new york city we moved for a short time to just across the uh, george washington bridge to new jersey and that was when things kind of fell apart and uh, when my parents divorced, I split my time between New York and New Jersey. Um, and uh, so I got, you know, that that life. But then I went away to prep school, uh, you know, pretty soon after that. So, um, you know, well, yeah, I mean, I, I think I, I think of the West Coast. I always thought of the West Coast as a just a permissive, um, you know, the, the, the love, the, 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 you know, the world of love and interracial relationships. I was always drawn to UCLA and I played basketball. So the, the Bruins were always, you know, life in Southern California, man, just looked idyllic. And uh, I, you know, I, I know Northern California is not quite Southern California, but San Francisco was a cool town. Fair. But, you know, as, as, as someone growing up Jewish, I mean, you certainly knew what it was like to feel discrimination and to feel targeted because of that. Yes. Um, I think we, we probably have that in common. Yes. And I think for, for many, many years, the African-American experience and the Jewish experience were very much aligned because of the persecution over over the years. You know, yes, I, I, I believe that certainly that was a common theme. Yep. Did you, when you left Manhattan and were formative in your teens did you follow a, a pretty straight and narrow path or when did when did you get involved with your dad's restaurant or were you doing anything before that that led you into this quote world of restaurants what were you doing before no that? i um, i started working with my, my father bought the restaurant in 73 i think i was 17 at the time 16 17 and uh, i started working uh in the dish room uh with him as you mentioned and um then I ended up just, uh, you know, I played basketball. I had a basketball scholarship to UMass at Amherst. And they also happened to have a fantastic uh, 
hotel restaurant. It's HRTA, Hotel Restaurant Travel Administration Program. And I figured, you know, if basketball didn't work out, I might as well study uh, the hotel restaurant management. So I did that. And uh, during the summers, I, you know, I was living in the city with my dad and I uh, would work in the restaurant. So dishwasher, busser, bartender. And then he finally threw a blazer on me and, and told me to get out on the floor and, and start shaking hands. So uh, it, it felt uh, as shy as I was, Will. And, um, you know, as a, growing up as an only child, uh, I wasn't I, I, I liked the company of people around. But as a shy person, it was not an easy, uh, fluid transition for me to just walk up to folks and ask them how their dinner. So your dad was more gregarious. Tremendously. Yeah, he could speak to Annie. He could talk the paint off of a wall. And he was a front of the house guy or did he get in the back of the house as well? Totally front of the house. He was the first black uh, clothing salesman at a downtown men's department store. He worked for Paul Stewart. Oh. And my father was an impeccable dresser, um, and uh, that uh, and very social, very gregarious, uh, smart, um, could talk to anyone, and uh, found himself hanging out quite a bit. It was initially one of the issues that he had being married, uh, but uh, he was spending a lot of time at, at the bars at the Upper West Side and in Harlem, and decided at one point when uh, the cellar became available. Uh, that he would purchase it, and he did, and it, it fit like a glove. It was tailor-made for him. Was it was indeed a seller? It was two steps down from the street. <laughs> That's cool. Reminds me of the grill on the alley in Beverly Hills, something uh, uh, a little akin to that. Uh, yeah, a little slightly kind of different clientele, clientele, but yeah. yeah I, I get that. Down. I get that. There's <laughs> nothing like the clientele of the grill, no, grill on the alley, but he he really was uh catering to that world which was the upper west side i mean was it primarily white folk or was it you know a, a mixed bag well interestingly enough um you know of course during the harlem renaissance in the years following uh black entertainment life flourished in harlem and then in the 70s the drugs took over and a lot of aff- more affluent black folks started to migrate to the upper west side and for any of those in your audience that aren't familiar with new york harlem is north of the upper west side so they migrated a little bit south and so in our neighborhood there were actually four black owned nightclub bar restaurants mckell's which was a famous jazz place russ brown's Brody's cellar and um so we the, the, the neighborhood was very mixed, but our clientele was 99.9% black. And it was it was a really interesting social experiment for me and, and learning experience for me. I used to watch white folks come to the top of the stairs uh, and take a look around the room and, they and would- see us see a black faces and turn around and, and walk out. Wow. And uh, that never left me, you know, I was always just aware of that and had, you know, wanted them to wanted them to come in. Tell you something interesting that happened though, Will, I, we were trying to promote the early week dinner hour and I decided to do like some street promotion and had a, a did up some flyers and, and hired a couple of guys and we just canvassed the five block radius around the restaurant. So a few nights later, I come into the restaurant to set up for dinner at 530 and I see we had booths in the center of the room and I see the top of someone's head in a booth. And I go over and the guy's reading the New York Times and nobody else is in the dining room. 
and I peek around to say hello to him, it's JFK Jr. And uh, I said, man, what are you doing here? How did you find out about us? He says, I got a flyer. And uh, he and I became friends, man, until uh, until this passing. He paid attention for sure. Yeah, man. God bless. He lived around the corner. He lived in a brownstone on, I think, 89th Street. So. So when you were in Massachusetts and you were pursuing, quote, a basketball lifestyle, you did have dreams of going in the NBA. I mean, was that something that was, hey, if I could if I could go into the NBA, I, I'm I'm not interested in the restaurant world. Well, I don't think there's a kid that's ever bounced the basketball that didn't think. He well, I stopped growing when I got to five five. It was the, it was over. I, I'm you, sure you were a great point guard. Junior high school, I was great. I was the only white kid on the team. By the way, they used to call yeah. me Blue Eyed Soul Brother. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, man. I had. I definitely I had good outside shot for years. Yeah. I'm sorry. I had a good outside shot, but not quite what you. I wasn't scholarship material. Well, Right. They just didn't notice. Well, I'm sure you had talent. But you were, um, you were in Massachusetts, so there's a different world coming into Manhattan then. Well, yeah, UMass was, uh, they actually, uh, the, the Julius Irving went to UMass a few years before I did. Ah. And that led to a, uh, an influx of, of black ball players from New York City going to UMass. So I was actually, uh, in fact, I'm, I do a text chain with my UMass teammates these days and we're on regular rotation. Um, but yeah, there were quite a few of us from New York City. And uh, yeah, I had I had dreams. I played four years there. I finished really strongly. I, uh, <laughs> I'll brag about it for a minute, but my best game was against Rory Sparrow at Villanova. Uh, the next to the last game of my career, I had 27 points on Rory. And uh, he went on to play for the Knicks, and I went on to work at the cellar. <laughs> <laughs> any more illustrious? Which I'm not mad about. Any more illustrious guys you played against? Norm Nixon, who became a tremendous oh. friend. In fact, I just stayed uh, with Norm Nixon and his wife Debbie Allen uh, when I was in Los Angeles last. We've been business partners at Roxbury, Georgia. Oh, uh, you got to tell me about that. Tremendous. I, I just got the high sign from Dr. D. We got two minutes before we got to go to break. So you'll tell me more about this a little bit later in the show. So that that's yeah. fascinating. So you play against Norm Nixon, then he becomes your business partner. Yeah. Yeah. And, and really good friend, lifelong friend. Yeah. Well, but you were in New York until when? Um, I moved from New York City to Los Angeles in 1989. And what prompted that move? I mean, were you saying I'm tired in New York, the East Coast, the weather, uh, you know, I'm chasing a one I'm, or I'm chasing something. I don't know. These days I got to be politically correct. You know, <laughs> he, she, they, it, whatever you were chasing, you know, what brought you out West? A combination of those things that you mentioned. Uh, I had gone out on my own, opened several restaurants and uh, went through a tricky business relationship and had a restaurant that I loved that I was working uh, with Astrid and Simpson, the famous husband and wife uh, songwriter team. I reconceptualized a, a, ba a failing restaurant into a brilliant cabaret, but the, the, the headwinds from tax trouble overcame us and we ended up closing. I ended up back at the cellar and feeling like I had failed. Wait a and, second. Uh, was that the Memphis restaurant? 
Well, I did Memphis, in Coastal, Manhattan. 107 West, and then I did 2020 with Nick and Val. And I sold my interest in those other restaurants to do that with Nick and Val. And then when that, then that, when that went under, um, I went back and, you know, was at the cellar and feeling like I had failed. <laughs> so did, did I was you, ready for a change. Did you create the Memphis restaurant? Was that your baby entirely? Uh, I had partners, but yeah, I was the only one that had any restaurant, real restaurant experience. Um, what, what was the over. first restaurant you created that you ideated on? The first one? Probably, uh, well, Memphis to, to, to a great deal. Um, you know, a lot of me went into that, but Roxbury, I would say, was, was that I thought of the name. I had the concept for three levels of entertainment um, from having done 2020. And I thought that LA being a driving culture would enjoy a place that could go to seven o'clock dinner, you know, nine o'clock jazz or blues downstairs and then hang out at the club without having to get back in their car. And I raised most, if not all of the money for Roxbury. All right. Well, I want to get into that after this break, because uh, Dr. D just told me we're going to take a break right now. We'll be right back with Brad Johnson. I'm Will Knox, Mr. Restaurant. Stay tuned, folks. There's a lot more to go with Brad. Restaurant is a tasty new segment on the Jeremiah Show. Host Will Knox, renowned restaurant real estate specialist, serves up a fresh look at the restaurant business. On the menu, celebrity chefs, startups, operators, deal makers, designers, and those are just some of the appetizers. Look for all of Mr. Restaurant shows. Tell your smart speaker to play the Jeremiah Show, Mr. Restaurant. Hi, I'm Shadow Stevens. While I'm doing this and that and the other thing at the very same time, I'm having a great time on The Jeremiah Show, the greatest show in the history of the world. For the love of God, subscribe. No, seriously, subscribe. Welcome, Los Angeles. The Jeremiah Show is now on Radio Candy Radio. Discover a world of emotions, your digital radio. The Jeremiah Show airs 10 p.m. Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays. RadioCandyRadio.com. Hi, I'm Marielle Hemingway, and you're listening to The Jeremiah Show. Welcome back. I'm Will Knox, and I'm with Brad Johnson, who hosts Corner Table Talk, a podcast that deals with all things related to culture, food, and drink. I'm just dealing with the restaurant biz with Mr. Restaurant. I just thought that there was a um, kind of a an opening in this podcast world for, and, and it's not really a podcast, I must say. It's a radio show and Zoomcast courtesy of the Jeremiah Show, of which I'm affiliated. I'm affiliated with the Jeremiah Show, Jeremiah Higgins. Mr. Restaurant is an adjunct to that. And I thought, Brad, that there was an opening for the restaurant sector, not the food per se, but the business of restaurants. I wanted to approach it because of my background in restaurant real estate and concept development. And that's what got me into this podcast zoomcast radio show 
So, welcome to Mr. Restaurant. I'm glad to have you, man. It's great to be here, Will. Love talking to you always. Before the break, we started to get into your ideation, and particularly with coming west from New York, you're a young guy. How old are you at the time? 22 or something? 30. 31. 30. Were you married? Anything holding no, you down? No, I left a girlfriend that I loved. We lived together, and uh, I could still picture her face. My wife doesn't get mad at me for saying this, but when I walked down the hallway to the elevator and, and pressed it, uh, I knew that I was leaving her. We'd hoped that we'd be able to uh, withstand the distance, but uh, we were not able to. But uh, I, And, and your yeah. wife we can refer to as... Her Linda. Linda. Okay, the infamous Linda. She's yes. she's pretty extraordinary, I understand, and certainly does your social media. Fantastic. Very lucky. You know, so we're all lucky to have good spouses for sure. That, that's a very, yes, very important thing to help us in this world called the restaurant scene, because that is not an easy deal. So when you came out here, did you know many people or, or how did you feel comfortable off the bat? Where did you where'd you move to right away? Um, well, I had met, uh, of course, Norm. Uh, Norm and Debbie had been in New York, and uh, Debbie was fantastic for me at Memphis. She brought Eddie Murphy parties, the Cosby Show parties, um, Stevie Wonder parties. Uh, she she really launched our catering business. Well, Debbie. they were prime time. I mean, they were they were he was showtime, and she was prime time. She was they were both at the top of their game, right? When oh you yeah, were, yeah, yeah. When you connected so, with them, and, you know, again, they've just been so great to me. But anyway, Norm had said, "Hey, man, you know, if you ever decide you want to come to California, you know, we could do something together." So I hung on to that, and uh, I'd met a guy named Eli Samaha. Who, Name that name you probably know. I do know that uh, name. I met him. I was on vacation with my father at the Via Vera Hotel in Acapulco, Mexico. My father loved playing tennis and they had great clay tennis courts. So I took him there on vacation. And Ely and his brother Dimitri were in the pool that day and we became friends. And they wanted to go into the restaurant club business. Uh, and so one thing led to another. I moved to LA. I initially lived in Marina del Rey. Uh, connected with Ely, uh, connected with Norm, uh, and Roxbury. Roxbury was born. I brought a few New York buddies out, Chris Bree, John Enos, John Long, and uh, put together. Norm helped me raise the, the funds. And, how much did uh, you raise? How much Roxbury. did you? What was the initial raise for that? <laughs> Believe it or not, Will, this wouldn't even... This would be a security deposit in 1989 dollars. <laughs> yeah, close to. I think it was 400 grand. We and that was put up uh, for a, you took over a, an empty space on Sunset Boulevard near Crescent we Heights. Took over what was the Imperial Garden. Yes. Uh, uh, but actually, I did a little digging and. Um, Prior, going way back, it was owned. In fact, he just passed away, I think, last year. It was owned by the director, Preston Sturgis. No, I'm sorry. Bob Rafelson just passed away. Who he lived just passed away. Yes. But anyway, Preston Sturgis owned a place called the Players Club. And uh, at that location, and I was able to locate his son, and he sent me images of the Players Club from the 40s with the cars in front. It was it was incredible. But yeah, so that three story location right in front of the uh, Chateau Vermont. And it was across the street from Carlos and Charlie's at the time. Was that right. happening? 
Yeah, so we're dating ourselves a little bit, but nonetheless, we're going going back in the history of the restaurant scene in the late '80s with Brad Johnson. Um, so I'm curious to to take it from here. You're going in looking at a second gen, what we call a second gen space, and you've got four hundred thousand dollars raised. But I'm curious about how you were thinking about. The concept, I mean, when it first came to you, you, I mean, okay, you're in the pool in Acapulco, you meet these guys, and did they have the lease, or who who was controlling the no, space? No, not at all. Um, and, you know, I didn't even know, Will, that you found the original Spago. I mean, that's like, in the record books, that's like, you know, one of the greatest restaurant spaces of all time. That was and my first restaurant deal. I know. That's incredible, man. Where do you go from there? <laughs> well, I ended up working with Peter Morton in the Hard Rock Cafe and doing all, all, right. all the initial yeah. stuff. So I, I've got a little, okay. little bit of yeah. that, too. So I'm very, um, very blessed, man. Very yeah, blessed. man. Yeah. No, absolutely, Will. You know, I mean, you have a nose for space, Will. You know, and I'm glad that we're spending some time talking about this aspect of the business because it starts there, right? It starts with location, 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 of course. But space is that intangible kind of thing that you feel, that you know, that you don't feel, and you move on. Um, We looked around for several locations. We looked downtown. I think Vertigo was happening at that time. We looked downtown. We looked, we almost got the, where the House of Blues ended up going. Yes. Isaac Brett beat us to that by a couple of days. We, were, we almost took that over. It was a restaurant prior to them tearing it down. Do you remember that restaurant, Will? Yes, it was called Butterfields, I think. Butterfields. I think yeah. so. Sammy Davis Jr.'s. Yeah, uh, kind of went down into his stairs. Yeah. And really yeah. kind of so hit, almost hidden that gardens. Space. Yeah. And then he showed me Imperial Gardens, and I was like, this is it. So, uh, you know, three levels, again, as I mentioned, wanting to do everything kind of, you know, one-stop shop. Uh, so folks could park their cars and spend the night with us. And, uh, this is pre, took, pre Uber, by the off. way, pre Uber, pre Uber. Yep. Everybody's valet. We peeled off. If you remember the third floor faced sunset, which faces South. Yes. Uh, Roxbury was on the North side of the street. So anything on the North side of the street, facing south gets that great view that sweeping view so we went up to the third floor and they had a sushi room that had all these pads and and blockages around the room we peeled those off and they were windows with the view south and either way on sunset and that became our vip room and that was really what spago was about because spago had the ability to look out on all of you know quote the southern view of the lights the twinkle of of la so that that was a very prominent uh, real estate you know uh position to have yeah yeah dr d are you telling me bernard was the major d right say that again wasn't Bernard the uh, major? Yes. The well, there there were quite a few of over over time. But yes, you're exactly right. Yeah. That's the one I remember. Yeah. All right. Listen, we got to take another break, and we'll be right back with Brad Johnson. I'm Mr. Restaurant Will Knox. Stay tuned. We're coming back.
suntan and young and lovely The girl from Ipanema goes walking And when she passes, each one she passes goes Ah Welcome, Somerset, England. The Jeremiah Show is now on Core Radio. Keep on rocking to the core. Core Radio, The Jeremiah Show, airs at 10 p.m. Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursday. CoreRadio.rocks. Hey there, I'm Caleb. I'm Becca. And I'm Joshua. And we, we are Girl Named Tom. Go to girlnamedtom.com to hear more of our music, buy merchandise and learn about our story you're listening to the jeremiah show You've been listening to The Jeremiah Show. I am Miles Zuniga from Fastball. Hey, this is Tim. And this is Christian. We're L1011. Hi, this is Ron Sexsmith on The Jeremiah Show. The Jeremiah Show. We're back. I'm Will Knox, and I'm with Brad Johnson. He is Mr. Hospitality. I will tell you, Brad's got some stories from the restaurants he's been involved with to the clubs to now his own podcast, which is a great show, which you got to listen to, called Corner Table Talk. By the way, on Corner Table Talk, I'm digressing a little bit, you have Ambassador Shabazz on that show. Tell me a little bit about her and why you brought her into your podcast. She comes in at the end of your show, right? Yes, yeah, she does. She, um, she listens through the This episodes. is Malcolm X's daughter. Yes, yeah, she is. The eldest daughter of Dr. Betty Shabazz and Malcolm X, and we are childhood friends. I call her my sister. Um, she is just, Will, uh, one of the most unique people that uh, I've ever met. She has just this calming presence about her. She's got a worldview, world vision, and she's got the best heart of anybody you'd ever meet. She's always doing everything for anybody and everybody, kids, you name it. So I thought it would be great to have her join me and uh, just kind of give a little summation of the conversations that we had and then tell us about some of the cool stuff she's doing. So that's what we do. With well, it's a stellar show and she's a great addition to it. And oh, you, you. you mentioned the calm and now I'm going to segue out of that into the calm of your life because you're a really calm guy. And I think of calm when I go into a space, a real estate space, because I know it's going to be chaotic and all the rest, but I get the feng shui. And if you don't have that feng shui, I tell a client, forget it. I don't care how great the deal is. You got to fall in love with the location and you got to fall in love with the whole vibe. You know, the numbers may come around and be great, but unless you've got that real feeling and you must have had that with Roxbury. I've had that several times in my life. And yeah, when you feel that, well, there's no denying it. It's just that magic that, you know, if you do your job well, that that space is going to complement what it is you're trying to do. And um, I had certainly had that with Roxbury. I had it with Georgia. I had it with Memphis and New York. 
And Post and Beam was different. I don't want to get ahead of the conversation, but we, no, we basically yeah. tore that building down and created a building. But um, I, I, once we created the building, I had that feeling there as well. So from Roxbury, did, did you have a business plan? I mean, like a hard analytical business plan or with you just with these guys and you say, hey, I got $400,000 and we're going to put it to work. And w- was it really kind of seat of the pants kind of deal or was it really an analytical you know, business-like, you know, situation. I mean, here you were coming into L.A., so you got to be pretty buttoned up. How did that come about? It was more or less the former. I mean, what we basically did was tell folks, look, $20,000, you're going to have a great time. You'll, you know, we'll treat you really well. You'll get a good table. We'll drop the, the red velvet rope for you and your friends. You can spare twenty grand. you know, come on in. And uh, we obviously we had to write up something formal because we were taking people's money. But uh, it was not based on a business plan in terms of enticing people to get involved. I mean, we had, um, you know, Raj Kanodi, a very well-known plastic surgeon. We had Michael Lippmann, who was big in the music industry. Michael actually led us to our first party for Bernie Talbot, who was Elton John's songwriting partner. Uh, and Pretty that was our, our first first party for uh, Bernie and uh, we were off to the races, but no, there was, there was a business plan only for the purpose of being able to take money. And how but, long uh, was the payback? How long was the payback on that? Uh, well, we actually, Norm and I got, it got a little contentious with uh, the other partners. Norm and I um, had to have a meeting with them and uh, we, you know, discovered a few things, but uh, we basically said, we're moving on. Our best, our investors and uh, our team are going to we, we are demanding our money because there was the, the, the I don't want to get into too much detail, but uh, let's say two years was the payback. And well, that's pretty good because got out. in in the restaurant yep. business, the norm used to be about 36 months when you get paid back. And the crossover, what we call the crossover, where the investors versus the limit, the general partners versus limited partners crosses over generally when they're paid back in say 36 months and nowadays it takes you even longer because these budgets are really huge so i thought you were going to say 36 years now well (laughs) you know i'm still waiting on one of my deals but nonetheless you know well it's 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 not in silicon valley bank i might say so (laughs) god god willing let's pray for all of us so listen you you went from roxbury and then you said to yourself now what or did you have another opportunity when georgia reared its head how did that come well, yeah up? i was i was tired man you know owning a nightclub is no different than just hanging out five nights a week and you weren't ma- you weren't married you weren't married to linda at this time i was not no got it um, so you were married to the business i've never been a drinker drugs are not you know my thing smoked a little weed you know whatever but nothing nothing hardcore so i was able to maintain my balance, but it was, it was, it's rough stuff, man. You know, I was New York. I was up till 4 a.m. That, you know, you could serve until 4 a.m. in New York, LA. It was last call at quarter to two, but you know, you're getting home at three, four. Um, it's a rough life. And I, I just wanted to get back to the restaurant business. And, uh, a woman uh, that was married to uh, Carrie Gordy, Karen Gordy found, uh, the space that became Georgia on Melrose. She made she brought it to my attention. I loved it. Great patio. And I said, you know, I really would like to do a southern restaurant. Initially, Denzel and I, 
who were friends, Denzel Washington and I, who were friends, became a partner in, in uh, Georgia. We wanted to bring a restaurant out from New York that we loved called Jezebel. And that deal became undoable, but we were going to take the space that became, um, oh, what's the sushi place on La Cienega? Just drove by Koi, became Koi. But before that, going way back, you would L probably know it was, was a French restaurant. What was it before? It was a French restaurant. L'Hermitage. L'Hermitage, I think. Lemertage. Right? Yep. Boy, we are yep. dating ourselves, man. I'm telling you, man. At least we're but standing. That, we're above the roots, so that's a good day. Yeah. So myself, Denzel, and Benny Medina, who is J-Lo's manager, we were going to do Jezebel there. And the Jezebel deal became undoable. We ended up doing Georgia. And, uh, you know, with the backdrop of, and I really, you know, all through my life, maybe because of, you know, the fact that I come from um, mixed ethnicity, um, I always wanted to bring people together of all, you know, I'm, I'm down with everybody. And Georgia, we opened very purposely black and white investors, Lou Adler, Connie Stevens, Eddie Murphy, Kareem, Denzel. I mean, we had a lineup and uh, we wanted, you know, white hostesses, black hostesses, uh, servers, gays. I mean, you name it, we had everything. And the, the backdrop, though, was the Rodney King verdict. And if you remember, L.A. was very polarized during this time. And then after a few years, we were open and we we're doing very well. The O.J. verdict hits. And uh, again, black folks celebrating, not O.J. necessarily, but the fact that finally one they of the were vindicated in court. Pardon? They were vindicated in court. Right. And uh, and nobody, not that everybody thought O.J was innocent it wasn't that it was just cheering for victory and white folks were aghast so we have a victory party at georgia and uh, johnny cochran called me right after the victory uh, right after they won uh the not guilty verdict was announced he called me that day and said man we'd like to bring the victory party to georgia i was like whoa man he said don't worry oj's not coming he's gonna do something else <laughs> and i called denzel i said man what should we do and he said man we're a restaurant you know have him come because they had been coming there during the trial so anyway, I set up a local newscaster friend of mine, Pat Harvey, with this exclusive interview with Johnny Cochran at six o'clock. She does it the, on the monitor. It says live from Georgia restaurant on Melrose Avenue. I go into the restaurant uh, right adjacent to where we had shot that. And all four of our phone lines rang, uh, were, were going off and N-word, N-word, N-word. We're going to blow up that effing place for 45 minutes. I handed the phone. Debbie Allen was in. I handed the phone to Debbie. I said, Debbie, listen to this. And Will, it was a local news station. Which, you know, I don't know what Hard the broadcast cash range is, but we yeah. weren't talk talking about Mississippi. Right. You know? So uh, that was that's some of the context that we dealt with with Georgia. But nonetheless, it was a, a great experience. And how long did that experience last? I stayed. Uh, I actually sold my interest in Georgia to do the Sunset Room in in 2000. So then you went back to the strip and did the Sunset Room, and that's 2000. And then you have a lapse till like 2012 when you open up uh, Post and Beam. Is that right? Was there what, not quite a lapse? Well, I, I shouldn't say a lapse. <laughs> you know. Uh, my, we took over Windows when Magic Johnson and uh, his group purchased uh, the Transamerica building. Downtown, downtown. L.A. Yep. So that was on the top From floor. a six-figure loser to a multiple six-figure winner and uh, did quite well down there. I opened Manemsha just before that and 
actually windows helped me recover the losses that I had sustained from Manepsha, which was a tough run. I couldn't and, even uh, pronounce. I did BLT. I could never pronounce Menemsha, even to this day. And I know that it's Martha's a spot Vineyard, in Martha's man. Vineyard. No, I know that I now. Roadmap to the Vineyard. But at the time, I'm just this guy in you know West Hollywood living, and I'm going Menemsha. What, what is Menemsha? I figured if, if they could say Matsuhisa, they could say Menemsha. Well, you were right. Did that spots it was a great concept because it dealt with new england and crab shack and you know lobster rolls and i i love it to this day and you're you're my inspiration in martha's vineyard because you told me exactly where to go every step of the way over a five-day period in martha's vineyard eat here for breakfast eat here for lunch and it got me around the vineyard food became my my journey it was it was my right. guide. You were my guide. But Menemsha, which is, you know, a cool word, it, it suffered, right? We got caught in a terrible economy. It was just after I was raising money for Menemsha during when 9-11 hit. And if you remember, uh, the restaurant economy sucked right after that, man. It was it was tough. I'm going to stop you. I'm going to stop you on. I'm going to stop you on suck because Dr. D is telling me we got to take a break. So let's stop on suck and we'll come back with Brad Johnson. I'm Mr. Restaurant Will Knox. Stay tuned. And now the end is near. And so I face. The final curtain My friend I'll say it clear I'll state my case Of which I'm certain I've lived A life that's full I traveled each And every highway And more much more than this, I did it my way. Check out Jeremiah's top 10 new artist picks on Radio India Alliance each week. The Radio India Alliance is a chart service that allows indie recording artists an opportunity to have chart placements. We don't charge. We support RadioIndiaAlliance.com. everybody, this is Anne Hitch. Hey everybody, I'm Art Alex Hutch from the band Everclear. My name's Danny Dreho. And you're listening to The Jeremiah Show. Jeremiah, you're loved, Holmes. Do you need help with your restaurant or hospitality business? See how we can help your business at hjlrestaurantadvisors.com. Hey, this is Jeff Stump Baxter. Please open your heart and reach out to a veteran and let them know, number one, that they are loved and respected. You won't give up if they don't give up. And you're listening to The Jeremiah Show. All right. 
why we left with suck uh, and Menemsha, but really uh, one of the things that I thought about Menemsha was that perhaps the location was a little bit off. Did, did you have any vibe on that? The location was tricky, Will, no question about it. And that was one of those times I took a chance knowing that and uh, see what happens. But on the last night, uh, my wife, Linda, who I wasn't married to at the time, but we were together, she saved me on that one. Our last night of business was a Saturday night. The restaurant was packed. Steven Spielberg was there. Ted Danson was there. I mean, these are vineyard lovers. And we were packed, but I knew we were closing. That was our last night. No one in the room knew. And I went out back, man, and I and cried. I bawled. It really was painful. I hated losing that place, man, and losing people's money. I had friends that had invested. It was a really, 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 really tough blow. Well, it shows how you have your heart and soul into it. And most operators don't have your degree of that heart and soul, but you've got to have that grit. And you stayed with it because after Menemsha, you did some other projects on the west side of L.A., right? Didn't you stay in Venice and do? Uh, uh, that came later. That came uh, after Post and Beam. We did Willie Jane. Willie Jane. Willie Jane. Well, let's talk about Post and Beam for a second. Sure. More than a second, because it's it's really an acclaimed restaurant to this day. And how did that really come about? It's in South you know, L.A. and Baldwin Hills, correct? Yeah. I remember talking to you, and you used the expression, you're going to have some tough sledding there. And I was like, damn. And you know what, Will? You weren't, you weren't wrong. It was not the easiest uh, project, but it was maybe the most fulfilling project I've ever done. Uh, we were able to sell the restaurant in 2019 to our young African-American chef and his wife, John and Ronnie Cleveland. Uh, the place has gone on to get James Beard Awards, as you've mentioned, the Jonathan Gold Award. Uh, Jonathan was a big, big fan of Post and Beam. Amy Scattergood from the L.A. Times wrote a fantastic piece about us when uh, when we moved on. Um, you know, we had some real Mona Holmes from Eater L.A. has been tremendously kind to Post and Beam. And the community just rallied, man. They rallied around that restaurant. And uh, it was such a fulfilling experience. I'm really happy for Johnny and Ron. John and Ronnie, uh, who continue to operate. I met with John last week and Post and Beam is, is doing well. Well, I thought it was a great idea because the area had not had a fine dining. I call it fine dining. It wasn't casual dining. It wasn't quick service restaurant. It was a restaurant that was a sit-down spot with great cuisine. I was nervous that the white folk wouldn't come over to South L.A. because this is, you know, still precarious, you know, area, that perception. So getting the crossover, but you were successful because you got the locals and you uplifted that scene to such a degree that the white folks said, I got to be part of this. I got to see this. And, you know, I, I applaud you for that because the crossover is, is, is difficult in the best of times. And you pursued it and you persevered and you made it. Well, thank you. It's I a have great to experience. Give a, a, great I love it. Deal, a great deal of credit uh, for that to Govind Armstrong, who, uh, as you know, is a, is a very well-named, well, well-known name. Locally and nationally. Yeah, top chef. Goldman, Goldman just brought the artistry with the food and the commitment. And uh, he was early in the uh, on-site garden. We had an on-site garden there before folks were really talking about that. 
And uh, Govin is a tremendous teacher, took John under his wing. And uh, I, I don't think Govind Armstrong gets enough credit as a, and, and should be one of those culinary heroes that uh, that is celebrated along with some of the bigger names that we hear about. But uh, I take my hat off to Govind and was really, really appreciative that he decided to join me in that, in that journey. How would you characterize his cuisine there? We did a version of, we didn't know it at the time, a California soul. Um, Pizza was one of the things that we thought we wanted to have. We wanted it to be a very family environment. Norman Debbie had a dance academy just across the parking lot from us. So we knew families would be dropping in. So we made the pizza oven our focal point. It's funny. I just had uh, the uh, co-founder of California Pizza Kitchen on uh, Rick Rosenfield. And he talked about the first California Pizza Kitchen. I think he just opened up oven. a... He just opened up a place in in uh, the Palisades, right? Palisades, yeah. A Roman, yeah, great Roman, concept. Yeah, Roman idea. You gotta see it. But uh, we we centered the concept around the pizza oven. We did a kind of mid century uh, vibe, post and beam, is mid century style of architecture, post and beams, and a lot of that architecture sprinkled throughout the hills of Baldwin Hills, Dare Heights, and View Park. Um, so Govin's food was was thoughtful. It was ingredient driven. Um, that's his style. He he has a way of bringing the best flavor out of whatever he works with, without overwhelming you with sauces and different and, and spices. He he knows how to enhance every every plate that he touches. And when it came down to do the southern stuff that we needed to nail the, the macaroni and cheese, the collard greens, and the cornbread, Goldman hit it out of the park. So you would think of him as a culinary hero. I think of you as a hero that would be featured in what I would like to see happen, a restaurant hall of fame. What do you think of that idea? <laughs> You're asking a restaurant tour what he thinks of that idea? This is a setup, man. <laughs> of course. That's a softball. Yeah, well, I, look, I don't think the restaurant tour has been fully recognized. You know, I agree with that. Or otherwise. Uh, and I grew up, you know, with heroes, Joe Allen, uh, my father, uh, Buzzy O'Keefe, you know, front of house guys who really and, and women, Alberta Wright, who really, really got it, what it took to welcome people and run an establishment and keep the whole thing moving and take on all of the burden of signing the lease, raising the funds. I don't think that that conversation has fully been had. So. Sign me up for your uh, your Hall of Fame, restaurant tour Hall of Fame. Where do you think it should be located? I, I've been trying to figure out if I could put a steering committee together. It's a long-term project, of course. Uh, but as we have the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, oh, Dr. D, you're telling me one minute and then we got to go hard, hard out? Okay, enough of the Hall of Fame. We'll get to that later. Listen, Brad, quickly, how do people contact you if they ever want to? Uh, well, at Quarter Table talk is our instagram uh i could be reached at brad at post and beam hospitality.com that's brad at post and beam hospitality.com and i'm responsive will uh, people reach out and i hit back so but i have to tell you man i am really proud of you for this new chapter thank you and uh, to draw on your experience i think is extremely valuable and uh you've always been just a great gentleman and a really valuable source for information so um, i'm saluting you well i think we reflect each other and and i gotta show you something right now i got two pages of questions 
Well, whoops, I got two pages of questions, and I haven't hit on any of them because you're just so conversational. It's been a ball, man. Unbelievable. I talk too damn much. You know, really, this is this has been great. I think I got to do chapter two with you. Yeah. We're gonna Anytime. have we're gonna have Brad Johnson back on Mr. Restaurant. I am Mr. Restaurant, and I'm not the Mr. Restaurant, but I'm Mr. Restaurant, and I'm part of the Jeremiah Show, which should be listened to, watched on YouTube, and all points in between. I'm Will Knox. I've been with Brad Johnson, and this has been just a fabulous hour. Thank you so much, Brad. Thanks, Jeremiah. Thank you, Will. Until we eat again, I'm Will Knox. Out of the tree of life, I just picked me a plum. You came along and everything started into hum. Still it's a real good bet The best is yet to come Did you like our soundtrack? Find all of our soundtracks on Spotify The Jeremiah Show Look for the black label As always, a big thanks to our station manager Les Carroll For letting us on the air at all Listeners, we appreciate you And want to hear from you Please send us your ideas at Jeremiah at thejeremiahshow.com or on Messenger, on Facebook, or Instagram. The Jeremiah Show is produced by executive producer Jeremiah Higgins and sound producer Richard Dr. D. Dugan. And me, your announcer, Tony Kelly. Communicate, listen more, and evolve. Best is yet to come, come the day you're mine. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.